0: Welcome back to A Flame for Christ, homilies to set your heart on fire with love for Jesus Christ. My name is Father Joseph Gill, priest of the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and you've joined us on The Kerygma, Part 2. So a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about what is the Kerygma? It's that core gospel message, that kernel of the good news that Jesus came to share with us. And as we spoke about the first part of the Kerygma, there's four parts. The first is that we are loved into existence, that God loves us infinitely and perfectly. But then came the bad news, the second part, which is that sin ruptured our relationship with God and brought misery and suffering into the world. So now we turn to the third part of the kerygma, and that is that we need some sort of solution for this sin, some sort of of remedy for this disorder that we've brought upon ourselves. And that remedy is ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, why? How does the cross save us? There's certainly a lot of different theories that theologians have put forth across the centuries, but this is my understanding. Imagine that you were a child back in school. If you were to punch a classmate, what would your consequence be? Well, the natural consequence would be perhaps getting suspended or maybe getting detention. What happens then if you were to punch a teacher? Whoa, now that's a little bit more serious. I think probably you'd get expelled, perhaps. But wait a second, what if you were to punch the president? Well, if you punch the president, then you'd probably get arrested and thrown into prison. So even though it's the same action, depending on who you offend, there's a greater or lesser consequence. Someone of greater dignity that we offend ends up being a greater consequence to that offense. So what would happen then? What would be the natural consequence if one were to punch God? If one were to offend the Almighty, what would be the worst punishment possible, which is not only physical, but spiritual death? that separation from that divine life that God wants to pour into every soul. In fact, St. Paul says that in Romans 6. He says, The wages of sin are death. The wages of sin are death. Think about this. If God is the source of all life and we turn our back on God, then ultimately we have chosen death. We've embraced death. And so we needed somebody then that could pay back the debt of death that we owed the Father but could not pay. Because if I die for my sins, okay, that's great, but it doesn't impact the rest of the world. I'm a sinner. That's only justice. It's not mercy. It's not something over and above what is owed. So we needed somebody that was sinless, but we also needed someone that was human because it had to be a human being paying back that debt. But of course, the debt is infinite because God's goodness is infinite. So an offense against his goodness would be an infinite consequence. So we needed someone who was sinless, infinite, and human. But well, there's only been one person in history that could do that, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. It's much like this, and uh, one of the early church fathers used the example of fishing. Right, in that when you fish, you put uh, the food on a hook, and then you bite uh, the fish bites down on the hook, uh, bites down on the food, and thereby getting the hook stuck in its mouth. And so in the same way, when Satan had this great hatred of the human race, because we are in the image and likeness of God, who he hates more than anything, he thought it would be a grand idea to kill Jesus Christ, both true God and true man. In a word, kill two birds with one stone, right? Take out the Father and the Son, and also take out humanity all in one fell swoop. But what the devil didn't realize is that as he bit down on his prey, the hook was there. As he was about to devour humanity, nevertheless, from the inside out, death was destroyed through a death. That's the good news of the Gospels, that Jesus Christ's death has set us free. Consider this as well. His death was the greatest act of love in human history. In fact, one could say that it's the only truly selfless, uh, disinterested act of love in human history. Because when I love someone, usually there's a little twinged with some idea of getting a reward, whether it's from that person or whether it's the reward of everlasting life from God. So there's always a little bit of self-interest there. But Jesus literally gained nothing from his death upon the cross. And so Jesus, in his humanity, could offer to the Father the only perfectly selfless act, the only act of perfect love in human history. And ultimately it was that act of disobedience, saying, God, my will be done that caused the fall with Adam and Eve back in the garden. So therefore it needed there needed to be a perfect act of obedience done on the part of a human being in order to undo that act of disobedience. So just as, as Saint Paul says, as in Adam all sinned, so in Christ all are raised to life because of his death upon the cross, which has put that enmity between us and the Father to death. But the cross did more than just that as well. The cross also, for example, showed us the depths of God's love. You know, I think Padre Pio had a great quote. He said, The proof of love is to suffer for the one you love. The proof of love is to suffer for the one you love. And he was the one who certainly lived that out, right? He had the stigmata, which are the wounds of Christ— One time, a lady actually asked him, does that hurt, you know, to have Christ's wounds in your hands and your side and your feet? And Padre Pio sarcastically responded, do you think God gave them to me for good looks? Of course they hurt. So why is that a spiritual gift? Sounds like a a curse, right? No, it's a gift because to love is to suffer and to suffer is to love. When we embrace suffering for the love of the other, that is the deepest depths of love that we can show. Suffering, really, you could say, is love made incarnate, love made visible, because it's very easy to say, I love you. It's much more powerful if it's proven. After all, as St. Thomas Aquinas allegedly said, a single drop of the precious blood could have redeemed a thousand worlds as sinful as ours. True, but would it have shown the depths of his love? Not so much. He needed to shed every drop of his blood to show us that he's literally willing to pour out his very life, give up every last breath, for you and I. So if you ever doubt God's personal passionate love for you, look at the cross and you'll see how valuable you are because he would rather die than spend eternity without you. And you know, when we look at the cross, we can never say, God, you don't know what I'm going through because he does. On the cross, he endured pain and anxiety and loneliness and abandonment and desolation and humiliation. Everything that we go through, right? And now God, Certainly God knew it, intellectually perhaps, how to suffer. But until you actually experience it, you do not know from the inside out what it is to suffer. And so God wanted to be so intimate with us as human beings that he wanted to experience suffering from the inside out. What a beautiful thought that is. And you know, when we unite our suffering to his suffering on the cross, all of a sudden our suffering takes on meaning. It's transformed. You know, back uh, maybe a decade or so ago, maybe a little less, there was a woman by the name of Brittany Maynard who made headlines because she had stage four cancer, and she was young in her late 20s, and she decided very publicly to end her life. And so she moved to a state where assisted suicide was legal, and she killed her, own, took her own life. But during that lead-up to that, where she had made very public her desire to end her life, a number of good Catholic writers wrote to her in public letters and said, Look, Brittany, don't do this. Your suffering has meaning. It has value. And they tried to encourage her by giving her the example of the cross. Because when we unite our suffering and even our death to the cross, we find that it becomes redemptive. It becomes a way in which Christ wants to save the world in and through us. In fact, St. Paul says in Colossians, he says, We make up in our sufferings what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Well, how can anything be lacking in the suffering of Christ? Well, nothing except for your participation in it. Nothing except for it being lived out in my life and yours. The church, you and I, who are the body of Christ, must go through everything that Christ himself went through. And so we should always see suffering as an opportunity to love, as an opportunity to unite it to his cross, which when you think about it, a lot of life is suffering. But when we see the cross, we realize that suffering is not meaningless, Is something we can lift up to him. I think a final thing, though, that the cross shows us is that it truly does give us an example of how best to love. You think about Jesus' commandment. He says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Now you may say, well, wait a second, though. In the Old Testament, it says love your neighbor as yourself, right? So how is this any different? How is this a new commandment? Well, the answer is that it's new because we're not just loving as I love myself. We're loving more. Than ourselves. We're loving to the point of laying down our life for the other. Think about the great saints who have embraced the cross out of love. You know, I think of St. Maximilian Kolbe who laid down his life to save another man from certain death in Auschwitz. I think about St. Damien of Molokai, the the Belgian priest who spent most of his life on a small island, a leper colony in Hawaii, literally pouring his life out for these most disgusting human beings who were still made in the image and likeness of God. I think of St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, who literally would pick up people with maggots crawling in their sewers. I think of St. John Vianney, who embraced the cross for souls. He would only eat one potato a week, right? Simply because he wanted to do penance to bring souls closer to the heart of Christ. And I think all of us too know people that have embraced huge crosses out of love. You know, I think of my friends Dan and Debbie, who have a son who has severe mental uh, retardation. And because of their great love in embracing that cross, they're an inspiration to so many people. They're not afraid of the cross. They unite it to Christ. And so the third part of the kerygma, the third part of the good news, is that the cross is what saves us. What Jesus did on the cross paid back the debt that we owed God but could not pay. It also redeemed our own suffering and death. It showed us how to love and it showed us the depths of his love for us. So the cross, what a beautiful gift that God has given us. But finally, we come to the fourth part. The fourth part of this charisma, this good news. And ultimately, this fourth part is faith. Because that's our response. Our response is to turn to the Lord in faith and say, Lord, I love you. And now I want to follow you. Now I want to have a personal relationship with you. Now notice that faith is the key. A lot of times we as Catholics think that we have to do it on our own, that maybe if we act really good and live a good life, then God will help us get to heaven. It's not like that at all. It's rather that we can't even do any good without his grace living in us. It's all grace. Think about the first person to be saved, to go to heaven. According to the Bible, who was it? Was it the Blessed Mother? Was it an apostle? No, it was the good thief, Remember, as he's hanging there, having no good works to offer to Jesus, he simply offers him an act of faith and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus respond? Amen, I say to you this day, you'll be with me in paradise. And so it was just simply that act of faith that saved him. Everything else afterwards, any good works that we do, is in response of thanksgiving, of utter gratitude to the great love that God has first shown us. It's really faith that makes us pleasing to to him because it's faith that opens our soul to grace. It's his righteousness, not ours. And so everything that we do in our Christian life is that response of faith, that living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and who gave himself for us. And so my friends, when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, the core of the gospel, the charisma, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that God loves us but that we sinned and turned our back on God, thereby choosing misery and suffering. But that because of our sin, Christ was willing to take it on himself on the cross and offer the perfect sacrifice to the Father, reconciling us back to God. And now our response is to live for him through faith.